Hey guys, this is Peter Ravella, publisher of Coastal News Today and co-host of the American Shoreline Podcast with Tyler Buckingham. So I wanted to tell you, we've got some really amazing content coming up that you need to pay attention to. We're going to be screening a documentary film called Entangled, and it's done by a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who's been on ASP a couple of times, David Abel, who's a journalist with the Boston Globe. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the definitive story of the North Atlantic right whale and the lobster fishery in the Gulf of Maine in this incredibly difficult and complex coastal issue. So this film is coming up October 22nd. You should be part of it. David Abel will be in the discussion before the film. Get your tickets. Go to CoastalNewsToday.com and you'll see Entangled. Get your tickets. And this is the October 22nd. It's going to be the best thing coming up this fall. The right whale is an extraordinary creature. It's really one of the wonders of the living world. But if something in our management doesn't change, the direction of the population points to zero, and that's extinction. The North Atlantic right whale is considered one of the most endangered species on the planet. This would be the first large whale in modern history that would go extinct. of the right whale population now bears scars that indicate entanglement injury. This was a big problem, and it's an urgent problem. It's a tragedy that we're losing the right whales. It's emblematic of large-scale changes that are happening on the planet. Human beings can exist without biodiversity, and this is maybe a harbinger of where we're going. We need to put as much pressure as we can on the agency to step up and take action right now. I don't think the urgency can be overstated. Human action is killing these whales, and human action has the ability to save them. Lobstermen are stewards of the sea, and they don't want to entangle anything. I sat here and listened to environmentalist after environmentalist tell me what a murderous individual I am. My opinion about the whales is fuck them. What more can we do? Eventually, they're going to die off. It's going to happen no matter what. As your governor, I will do everything I can to defend Maine's lobster industry in the face of this absurd federal overreach. The challenge is to find ways for the fishing industry and the right whales to coexist in the same waters. NOAA is the fox scouting the chicken coop. You're going to be fired for being a liar and a person who works to kill off the right whale. One of the problems is that fisheries are one of the main factors that are endangering protected species. You end up with one organisation deeply conflicted with its mission. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. 
You know, Tyler, one of the big things we cover in Coastal News today, climate change and sea level rise and the risks along the shorelines of America, but also around the world. It's a persistent topic on the American shoreline. And, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of people working very hard to figure out how to adapt to these changing conditions and threats and climate adaptation and shoreline restoration and living shorelines and resiliency billions of dollars going into this enterprise Uh, and something that we've talked about uh, on other shows is really what are the social implications of this initiative and how are these programs and projects to you know protect the shoreline and protect upland property uh, going to operate what are the social implications it turns out to be quite complicated and uh, today we're going to talk to a journalist who's done a lot of work on this topic, Michael Allen, who's with us from the UK. Michael produced a piece uh, recently in Hakai Magazine, which I encourage people to check out, called Protection for the Rich and Retreat for the Poor. Uh, Pretty cool uh, topic, Tyler. Really looking forward to talking to Michael Allen today. Right. And in particular, we're going to be looking at uh the United States and uh, how our policies here of coastal management, armoring, protection, insurance, housing in general, are creating a situation of gentrification along the shoreline, something we talk about all the time. Yeah. And in fact, uh, uh, let's see, this show's coming out on Monday, so if you go back to last Friday's show, we did a, a program on uh, the, with the Working Waterfront podcast. Working waterfronts are are feeling under siege from gentrification too, uh, so uh, this is a this is a theme of climate change. People are going to be moving around. Uh, our our concepts of housing and and security and what it means to make sense to be in certain places is changing right before our eyes right now. So this is going to be a really interesting conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. 
Well, Michael Allen, thank you for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast uh, from the UK. Really a pleasure to have you on. Um, so the article in Hakai, Protection for the Rich, Retreat for the Poor, uh, sets up the dynamic and the tension in climate adaptation pretty damn clearly. Tell me, uh, tell us about uh, the story and what brought you to the topic and how you framed it up. Yeah, hi. Well, thanks for having me on. Really, uh, the story came from the idea that I was noticing lots of scientific papers, particularly turning up and talking about this issue of climate gentrification and a kind of mismatch really between who does and doesn't get coastal protection and what happens when climate resilient architecture is added to cities and kind of towns and what that does to the to the demographics really how it causes people to move around looking at this idea that these modifications are often appear to be done along kind of socio-economic lines so certain groups are more likely to get coastal protection than others while other groups are more likely to to have um to have federal buyouts of their properties and and then to move elsewhere and then also additionally once these adaptations have been added the protections and other adaptations as well like kind of climate resilient parks green roofs all structures really that are designed to I guess wick away quickly storm water and and storm surges when these things get added again we see these changes in population dynamics poorer residents that used to live in these areas find that they are priced out as the areas gentrify and then the socioeconomics of the neighborhood changes but again quite where these people go after this isn't really that clear and then the third element that i briefly touched on at the end of the article is also what's happening with areas in cities which are traditionally more resilient than others and perhaps in the past weren't seen as hugely desirable so high areas of land in cities like miami and new orleans that are not on the seafront so like i said in the past not a hugely desirable areas for people to live but suddenly now everyone wants to move there because it gets them a couple of meters above the sea level. Yeah. I mean, there's just, it's kind of happening everywhere, but I want to, I want to just think about kind of the timing of your piece because it seems like, you know, I would say certainly for the past decade, I have been aware of and been following uh, in, you know, green roofs and, uh, you know, improvements to the subway system so that it doesn't flood and, you know, things like that, that are that programs, projects that are with re- resiliency in mind that have been happening. And the thing is, like some time has happened. And these projects have actually been built and uh, you can now look back on the data, I guess, and see what the introduction of these features in communities is. And I find that just very interesting of course the intention i think when when installing these features initially was like i think totally pure pure hearted i don't think there was a a real concern that it would result in this uh movement you know creating an an increase in the property value and uh push people out because of the cost i mean I, i don't think that was part of the initial intention but could you talk a little bit about the timing and and what because of the 
our, our current relationship with climate change as a society, kind of how this is all coming together in this moment in 2020? Well, yeah, you're right, really, that a lot of these projects even were planned with people that are seen as more kind of vulnerable to climate change in mind. So people that perhaps don't have the means themselves to move or in neighbourhoods that would be more subjected to flooding. So the intentions, like you said, were really relatively noble, but the, the devil often in these things is in the detail and without enough kind of oversight, they've gone a bit awry. But really, I, yes, I, I think you've really kind of explained quite well why this stuff is starting to come out now. We're becoming more and more aware of climate change and the risk of these things. So over the last decade or so, cities have started these kind of green and climate resilient infrastructure projects. And now we're reaching a point where we can start to analyze the data that is coming out of those and how well they've actually performed and see the mistakes that have been made and also perhaps paths going forwards for improvement to stop these issues around climate gentrification. Uh, Michael, it's 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 one of the reasons we we wanted to speak to you is because I think the assertion in the article and uh, in the research that you cite in the article uh, is that the attempt to uh, adapt to climate is exacerbating inequality along the shoreline, uh, and it is breeding a new form of climate gentrification. So uh, as we move forward around the world, not just in the United States, to contend with increased sea levels, the threat to upland property, uh, I think it's really important that this issue of the inequality and, and the impact of these, as you said, well-intentioned projects is made center to the conversation. Um, when you were doing your reporting on the topic, uh, is there an awareness, do you think, in the communities uh, that in trying to do the right thing, they can have some negative consequences on the on the demographics and the socioeconomics of their communities that are both racial and economic uh, disparities are uh, exacerbated here? Yeah, I mean, that's a hard question to answer. It's hard to know really whether or not the cities and the governments involved in this are aware of it or not. I mean, I would imagine that if the, you know, the researchers studying this have picked up on, on these trends, that it would not be news to the city halls either. And I would assume that they would be aware that it's happening and hoping to kind of improve it going forwards. But there certainly seems to be data to suggest that this stuff is happening. And I guess if the uh, the right people have not seen this data or have not paid attention to it, I think obviously they need to be kind of questioned as to why they're not looking at this. But I would assume, I like I said, I would assume that they do know what's going on and they are now aware of it. And I would hope that going forwards, they would be changing policies to, you know, to ensure that it doesn't happen in the future. I mean, I think what often seems to happen in these projects is that, like I said, they have good intentions, but they just don't, they're, they're, what the researchers are telling me is that there isn't really enough kind of planning in them and the cities essentially lose control so the they set up these projects and these plans but they are so you know the the land is sold or is controlled in different batches by different developers and the regulation isn't there enough to control what the developers then do and the project kind of runs away with itself 
and gets away from the city and then or the city governance and then we have these kind of unintended consequences it really is a climate change thing it's 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 a climate change regulatory arbitrage that's the same thing that happens in fisheries where the fish move and all of a sudden you know uh, there's yeah. there, the rules don't exist for for this fish in this region because it's a new thing and exploitation can happen. Same thing can kind of happen here. I mean, uh, the 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 rate of change of the planet feels to me. I mean, this is my feeling like it's really minuscule and small. It's it's perpetual. It's constantly happening. It's adding up to big changes. But the social changes, the expectations, I think, can move really actually quite quick. And that's that's an aspect of this that uh, we see with the you know with fisheries elsewhere and certainly in you know uh, Peter goodness after a storm rolls through emergency permitting I mean like there are real parameters to our political system that when you put in uh, you know an elected official who's expected to hold the line on uh, a policy out of, in in the name of you know quite quite decent virtues like fairness. You know, uh, you know, can be quite easily influenced by that row of multi-million dollar houses that are privately owned by multi-millionaires. Uh, this becomes a, a real issue of I don't want to say corruption as though there's you know it's it's illegal. It's 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 that there's no oh, they have influence and power. They have influence and power, and so it to me, Michael, what immediately came you did not say this and i'm just going to come out and say it ladies and gentlemen this is a this is i don't want to say it's the no spin zone but it's something like that. no we don't want to say that <laughs> no we don't but anyway my point is there's something here about private property uh and privately owned housing did is that am i keying into something well yeah i mean the bigger issue it seems to be as well in some areas not necessarily just on privately owned property one of the things i touched on at the start of the article is some research in north carolina looking at what happens with with sea level rises and flooding and the application of shoreline protection so armoring beach nourishment of property mm -hmm. buyouts and how all that links with different socio socio socioeconomic groups and what the research essentially found is that the coastal adaptation measures are used relatively well with regard to risk, as you would kind of expect. Mm -hmm. But but those strategies are deployed differently depending on socioeconomic factors. So shoreline armoring is much more common in areas that have low racial diversity, higher home values, higher household incomes, and higher population densities. However, property acquisitions, so money to homeowners, so to basically buy their property so they can move elsewhere is much more common in areas with higher racial diversity, lower home values, lower household incomes and low population and lower population densities. Mm -hmm. But what research the then what people are then telling me is that actually as well, a lot of these very high value properties that are right on the coast in kind of resort communities that are being protected, they're not actually privately owned. They're owned by corporations. These are essentially companies that are owning properties, which maybe some people live in, but are also make a lot of money at certain times in the year being rented out as holiday homes. So 
there is an element of kind of private ownership in some ways but on the other hand actually a lot of the money apparently has been been spent basically protecting what are essentially corporate assets whereas those that own their homes or rent their homes that they actually live in a little further back from the short line are being bought out and then moved on but of course when we come to the air the issue of kind of climate gentrification in some of the cities where the infrastructure is built and then we see the social and economic shift there's a slightly different element perhaps there of home home ownership that the new kind of properties and real estate that is built is bought by people that move in and the low-income renters that lived in those areas before find that they can no longer either afford to buy one of those properties or to continue renting in you know in their old neighborhoods that makes good sense and i appreciate that summary uh the there's a couple of things happening i think you're pointing out in the article one is when and i'm going to use the example of beach nourishment but short protection we invest revenue in beach nourishment where the value of the upland real estate is high uh, and that's intentional i think and i think a lot of our listeners may not know just a quick question when you say yeah. we do you mean the, what do you mean the united states that we, the, the government the government invests where the value of the upland real estate is high. And this is because in the Corps of Engineers uh, criteria for justifying federal investment, and this was something Rob Young was talking about in the article, uh, who we, we absolutely loved, uh, Dr. Rob Young from the Center for the Study of Developed Shorelines at Western Carolina. But he's the program, the program. program. What he's pointing out is that the federal investment standards drive investment to high upland value uh, because of the benefit cost ratio requirement and what is a valuable shoreline what's worth protecting the and it makes sense as you're saying risk is a natural and is it, it, an appropriate criteria to look at gee if there's a lot at risk maybe we should spend some money to try to protect it seems sensible motivation seems justifiable the impact of that though as I think you're pointing out, Michael, is we end up investing public funds to protect investment properties in the highest dollar, and we end up with the goodies, the government's investment power, being directed toward a higher socioeconomic class of property owners. Exactly. And leaving out the, the poor, and it's kind of a, it's important we understand that's what the hell we're doing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as some people pointed out to me, and I mentioned in the article, there seems to be an element that US federal disaster policy is focused on protecting assets and cost effectiveness, mm -hmm. as you just outlined, rather than looking at kind of population and I guess social factors. It's not looking at kind of protecting communities, it's looking at protecting assets and money. Yeah, and, and, and I think if we talk to, you know, the common, you know, citizen and said, hey, Jess, guess what? We're going to we're going to put money into the shoreline to protect property and we're going to protect the highest value. People would, I think, instinctively say, hmm, seems to make sense until you start to look below the surface and the implication of that. And it's this social dislocation that's occurring and the racial disparity that occurs when you apply that standard. Um is is there when you were looking at the research and writing the article 
uh, it focuses on the United States and, and asserts, and I think quite correctly, uh, that the policies and the programs of adaptation have not caught up with this unintended consequence of gentrification and racial and socioeconomic disparity in the impact of these programs. But when you we're doing the research, are there countries around the world doing it differently uh, that are accounting for this in a different way? Is anybody kind of on top of this yet? To be honest, that's not really a question that I can answer that much because all of my research, my research for, this, for yeah. this article was focused on the United States. But this is, I'm told, a problem that is happening all over the world. Not, not, I'm not sure about this issue around the adaptation and the unequal the unequal distribution of it, although I suspect it is, but just the idea of climate gentrification generally, it is a kind of global issue that researchers, including many of the people I spoke to in the article, have documented happening in places like Manila in the Philippines, you know, in Indonesia, in Spain, in the United States. So these are global issues. But from my point of view, the article is very much focused on these issues in the US, and I don't really have much detail on exactly what's happening elsewhere around the world. But it would not surprise me that we are seeing the same kind of problems. And no one really gave me much indication of anyone yet that is doing a kind of decent job of managing these things. It wouldn't surprise me either, uh, Michael. I think that that's a, a fair assumption. But I am curious about what's the vibe over in the UK on the shorelines over there? Uh, how are these issues being tackled uh, in the coastal towns of the United Kingdom? Well, we obviously have a slightly different situation to in America because particularly on the East Coast, you obviously have issues with hurricanes and big storm surges. And I think that's what's driving a lot of these projects. I mean, people have told me that, that Sandy was a particular shock because it hit very high up the East Coast. We don't have such a big problem with you know, we do have storms here, but such powerful storms. But where I come from, in uh, where I grew up in the UK, I grew up in the east of England in a county called Norfolk, which is a coastal county. It's the kind of lump that sticks out towards Holland, and there are there are areas there where the where the cliffs they're kind of just sandy cliffs really have been eroding at kind of meters per year for a long time now but that's very rapidly increasing as we are still seeing you know sea level rises increases in storm surges and there are huge issues there with houses that a couple of decades ago have had a two three hundred meter long garden from the house down to the edge of the cliff they are now in a position where their utility pipes you can see them from the beach because they're poking out the bottom of the, you know, the gardeners retreated those two, 300 meters to their back door. And really there's still a big question going on here about how we deal with that because these aren't really disaster situations. Because right. as I understand it, what happens in the US is a lot of this kind of money for coastal protection and buyouts comes from federal money that is allocated after a disaster like a big storm but yeah these events in the uk aren't happening like that they're not sudden events they're very kind of they're quite slow events right at least on these coastal regions so there there's a there 
there isn't really a solution. I don't really know what happens at the moment to those house home known owners near where I grew up on the coast. I think that at the moment they are just kind of left and their houses now have no value. There isn't really government funds or local funds that is being used to buy them out mm. because these are seen, I guess, as long-term issues that people could see coming. So, you know, they should have solved the problem themselves years ago. Wow. Obviously, how they do that is a different question. And it, it's hard to see how a homeowner would. But I think that's the general kind of attitude. But obviously, we do also have issues with massive increases in rainfall and flooding. You know, in certain areas of the UK, we have, you know, quite fast river flows coming down from mountains that come then through towns which are in tight river valleys. And we're seeing big issues in the recent years of very extreme levels of flooding, which is, you know, predicted to increase. And so those are more kind of disaster type scenarios, although not coastal. But in those places, really, the expectation is that you have insurance that pays for it. But then, as I'm sure is the case in the US on the coast, we're now reaching points where those people can no longer get insurance because these floods are becoming are becoming so regular that the insurance companies just can't afford to insure them. So we're in a similar situation, really, where the kind of detail of the policy and quite what we do going forwards hasn't really been worked out. You know, it's one of the things that uh, I love about coastal issues is uh it is a it is an the land water interface reveals uh tension and conflict and clashes of interest in a very quick and and understandable form and climate change is impacting coastlines around the world and in an effort to respond to that investments in adaptation living shorelines uh, resiliency planning improved home uh building standards all of these things which we think you know that's an appropriate it is necessary to do this to rebuild the beaches build the dunes improve the marshes and wetlands like they are in louisiana billions of dollars worth upgrading building standards all good stuff uh the article talks about how we are investing in richer areas and it also has this thing that the that I like in the title, Retreat for the Poor. The flip side of this is in areas that don't have sufficient value, uh, governments are unwilling or less willing to invest major dollars because the upland value that they're trying to protect simply doesn't justify the investment. The outcome of that is poorer communities, rural areas, uh, tend to get left out of the adaptation uh, lottery a little bit. Um, Retreat for the poor. Can you talk about what your research for the article revealed about this notion of of retreat and how it's applied socioeconomically? Yeah, sure. I mean, quickly, though, I'd just like to make another quick point, which is that this, it should be made clear, really, that even though we're protecting rich assets on the coast, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is good value for money and that in the long term, that is a good way to spend that money. I mean, if you look at places like North Carolina and the geography there, the idea that these properties and towns and this real estate is going to survive what is predicted to come with climate change 
is slightly ludicrous really so we spend you spend a lot of money protecting and armoring these kind of houses and properties that are on these islands because they're worth a lot of money but actually the chances are in the long run those aren't going to survive and that kind of time period probably isn't necessarily that long either but going back to what you're asking about the retreat of the poor yeah what the article is suggesting really is and the research is suggesting basically is that yet yeah, areas of high racial diversity and low home values when there is a disaster the money that comes in to deal with that is just used to buy these people out they just written a check which meets the value of their property a day or two before the disaster happened and then they just they I, they they just move on but what i found really surprising was the researchers told me there is no real policy and there's no real research on this either to see what happens to these people where they actually go where they actually move to basically no one knows wow so we don't we don't really know it's it it would at least this is what i've been told where they move to so we don't know if they're moving to somewhere that is safer and better protected than where they were before or if the money they've been given actually because the change dynamics on the coast isn't enough so they end up moving to less well protected areas hmm. right that certainly is what seems to be happening with the climate gentrification when the people move out of the cities where they've had these kind of climate resilient infrastructure built and they find they can no longer afford to live in their neighborhoods because there's been a revaluing of these neighborhoods and their rents have gone up the evidence seems to suggest that they're moving much further out of the city and also to areas that are less secure from a climate protection point of view than where they lived previously even before the adaptation methods interesting so you end up with a, a questionable benefit at all. Uh, I think the example that comes to mind for me is the Ninth Ward in New Orleans. After Hurricane Katrina, this was a historically black neighborhood and considered the heart and soul of the city, really, for many, uh, where a lot no of the, question. the musicians lived, the people who worked in the bars and restaurants, the service community. Uh, it was a deep history. The Ninth Ward was flooded. Uh, when the levees breached, and that neighborhood has not been rebuilt by the city. They simply displaced them. Uh, many of them ended up here in Austin and Houston, but uh, I don't think there's been a definitive study to say uh, what happened to those who were displaced by that storm, and, the, and that was essentially a decision to retreat from the Ninth Ward within the city. Did you t come across that example? Um, I mean, I looked at New Orleans briefly in the article, but only from the point of view of what's been happening on the higher ground in New Orleans since Katrina, which is that, which is essentially that higher areas of land have become much more valuable. And because of that, they are now significantly whiter, have higher and have higher average incomes than they did prior to Hurricane Katrina. So this is probably a slightly different situation. Mm -hmm. What you're describing is people being moved out immediately after. This is a more long term scenario where people are then finding themselves pushed out of areas that are 
better protected over a kind of 10-year period following the hurricane. Got it. And in this idea of, I like that you mentioned that in the article, that the higher elevation properties within coastal cities are increasing in value and displacing historically minority or lower income communities. Getting wider. Getting wider. And the reason that makes so much sense, and there's a couple of good examples that you cite. New Orleans is one. The other one is in Miami, Little Haiti, and the displacement of the Haitian community in Miami. The highest value property in Miami is next to the water, of course. That's where the wealthy people are. If you're uh, poorer, you lived in the inner part of the city, it turned out that Little Haiti was a higher area. But since climate change and sea level rise has affected Miami, wealthier people are buying that property in Little Haiti. And, and there's a big you know, discussion about the displacement of this historic community within Miami, uh, which is driven by climate change and land elevation. Kind of an interesting... And, and huge demand. So that's this is the next thing I want to talk about, because, you know, uh, the demand for property in Miami... I don't. I forget the name of this show. There's a next Netflix show that my girlfriend's been into. It's, it's like a, a Los Angeles real estate show, and they flip properties, and it's really... This was like hot on Netflix recently, and... Uh, one of the one of the characters, one of the women who's the uh, lead in the show, wants to move to Miami because she's like, "This is where it's going off. This is where the money is to be made right now," uh, and it's of course because of the water. And that's what I wanted to ask you, Michael, is about this changing relationship with the water. I, I feel as a as a UK uh, resident, uh, you have a particularly uh, astute point of perspective on this in that the island nation it's an island nation and also it's a it's an it's a factory nation it's an it's the nation that led the world in industrialization and the coastline was a working space it was a place of trade and commerce and factories and it was an industrialized zone and what i've seen of late in the conversion of the uh, industrial waterfront to the condominium waterfront the tourism waterfront is that that has changed the relationship with these areas from being places that could support a diverse economy with all sorts of different jobs, you know, different types working, of fact. Yeah, working class people on the coast. Right, with, you know, with stores to support this. So, you know, you have a grocery store and you have a, you know, all of the stuff that accompanies a real community with real things. But when you shift to this tourism economy and you kind of monoculture the space, all of a sudden the incentives in that community become you know, align with that monoculture, that economic monoculture. And in, in this case, I think in in the United States, certainly I'm, I'm thinking of the Carolina shoreline where, you know, historically those were homes, small communities, fairly diverse actually in certain areas. And now those are mansions that are airbnb There's a whole industry of, I mean, that's worth... And that, that, that then becomes part of the just justification to protect it. I mean, that seems like a crazy shift. Did you encounter that at all, Michael? This this kind of how the tourism economy... I know this doesn't so much matter in the cities like New Orleans or Miami. But in the, the lesser dense parts of the coast, I feel like this tourism shift has become increasingly powerful on the coastline. That comes back to the previous point, really, the protection of these properties, which are really assets rather than homes. So these are 
yeah, essentially Airbnbs, holiday lets. These are properties which are making vast amounts of money for six months of the year. And really, probably for the homeowners, I wonder if they if the value of the home is really as much of a financial consideration for them compared with the amount of money they can make during the holiday season. But clearly the problem with what we're seeing here is that these, to, for these um, coastal resorts to run, they need workers in the service economy. But if their towns are being cleared out, where do they come from? Right. If they're, you know, if they're shifting kind of 10, 20 kilometers down the coast, they're not going to, or inland, they're going to stop kind of traveling out to these places. It, it seems slightly counterintuitive in some ways for these tourist economies to be, if the communities where their work, you know, a lot of their kind of key workers live are removed. Yeah, 100%. I think, uh, you know, and it's interesting if you've been to Palm Beach and I did a, a beach project in Palm Beach, Fish Ocean Park, Phipps Ocean Park uh, Beach Restoration Project. And it was kind of stunning to go to uh, Palm Beach County where you had this ultra well, this is where Mar-a-Lago is, but this ultra wealthy waterfront, extremely expensive, tens of millions of dollar properties, very, very high end uh, in a community that had a fairly uh, robust tourism economy, the working class people in the county lived far from the water um, and struggled to afford to live in that county where the cost of living uh, was driven by uh, the very wealthy sector of the population. And I think this dynamic uh, is made worse. The problem of access to property is exacerbated uh, by climate change adaptation policies or can be. And that's really, Michael, what I think is important about the work that you did in the article and pulling this together is we have to think about the socioeconomic implications of our response to climate change. Um, doing the right thing, adapting, investing in short protection, upgrading standards, uh, changes the community uh and i i like the the notion that you pointed out that when you implement short protection projects you can increase the value of property and displace people simply from the economic change in the community the gentrification of the community um do do you think um i don't know what, what did you make of of having done the, the done the research uh and looked into the issue um are you an optimist about our capacity to handle climate change in a fair and equitable way? Or do you think like we're missing this entirely or what do you, what do you think is going to happen here? That's a a very good question, really. I mean, because these aren't just issues necessarily also of climate resilience. Climate gentrification also comes about as well in efforts to mitigate from climate change. So the building of, better public transport, more cycle lanes, things like that are also driving this. So it's kind of covering the whole spectrum of things that we are doing to reduce our emissions right through to things that we are doing to protect ourselves from the effects of climate change. I mean, the essential problem is, I guess, that in some ways we these neighbourhoods are being improved by what's being done. Right. And then there, 
but then there isn't enough regulation really to ensure that they then remain places where everyone can live. They become very desirable areas and people get pushed out. And what's interesting is that what one of the researchers told me that I spoke to was that one place where you see a lot of green places where you see a lot of green gentrification or climate gentrification tend to be places which have a very kind of intensive branding so that it's part of their kind of identity they're known internationally as these kind of livable green cities they really kind of push the idea that they are green and livable that they're very healthy climate friendly cities so they're kind of driving this desirability to live there and that again then drives up the cost of living there so i'm not sure about my levels of optimism on this really because unfortunately cities and governance has always been very bad at managing things like affordable housing rent controls i mean it's a bit more of a thing in europe but as i understand it the idea of rent control in uh, the us is pretty much would get you branded a communist wouldn't it <laughs> yeah i think so except in yeah, very few towns and the the notion of protecting uh uh neighborhoods from uh the infiltration of the poor and the undesirable is is a, an explicit uh position in the presidential election these days well and i lived i lived in a rent controlled place in san francisco did you yeah and of course i was a subletter because the the person that held the rent the lease could make i mean her livelihood was just subletting the rooms and she crammed a lot of people we had 10 people in a four bedroom wow place one bathroom thousand bucks a month so she turned it into an airbnb essentially she yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it was long term, no, but long term. I mean, right, but she turned it into I mean, an investment property. She was able to afford to live in San Francisco because of, uh, you know, she had a very low rent situation mm. and she could sublease the spare rooms in her place at market rate, which was, you know, so much more than what she owed each month huh. in rent that it was, you know, it was a great situation for her. Right. Um, but no, I, I, Michael, I completely agree with you that there are, Governments have clearly not entirely figured this out yet, and the politics of it are really, really tough uh, because so many people rely on rental income. Some people, so many people, you know, our relationship with housing in this country is... Uh, it's constant battle. It's a constant, and it's, cha Public, it's changing all the time. I mean, the notion of... You know the the little house in the suburbs where you you go. You know that's not typically that's not your b typical beach situation. No, I mean, it, it, mind you, in a city like New Orleans, you do have real neighborhoods. That city is actually, oh, yeah. but uh, typically, when you're talking about a beach community, a, a coastal community, the gentrification that we have seen, Peter, we t we so yeah. many guests on this show, this very show. I've talked about, boy, when I was a kid, we'd go out and it was a shack out on the beach and it was cheap and affordable and there were no shoes, no rules, you know, it, no, it was it's changed. It's changed. It is expensive, big business now. Well, I, you know, I'll tell you one of the things that you've pointed out about the, uh, the high cost of these projects and the capacity of the communities to pay being a factor uh, recently at this week, uh, this was in Coastal News Today. The Army Corps of Engineers in North Carolina, 
right? In North, the, two, the town of North Topsail Beach and Surf City are on a single barrier island. Uh, the Corps has proposed a massive beach restoration project. I want to say it's 13 miles long, but don't quote me on that. Uh, the cost of the project is estimated at $267 million. And uh, the town of Surfside, which I had, disclosure, worked with on their financing strategy years ago, is equipped and got their money in the bank and ready to partner with the Corps. Uh, the town of North Topsail Beach, which happens to be the wealthiest community on that island, is balking at the shared costs that they have to contribute, the value that they have to, the taxes that they have to raise. So even, Michael, even in a situation uh, on Topsail Island where this is, I would say, is a wealthy barrier island community, um, the ability to participate and to, and to financially fund these projects is, uh, is, is a challenge. And I, I wonder if... Uh, the socioeconomic displacement argument, uh, it maybe evens out because even the wealthy communities can't afford to, in rural, in less populated, less dense uh, areas, are not going to be able to carry the burden of adaptation. I don't know. I mean, maybe everybody suffers, rich and poor. Well, that's an interesting point, really. I mean, it, the question around a lot of this comes down to who pays, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of the problem I think I mentioned earlier in the US seems to be that there's no planning really for a lot of these coastal adaptation methods like, you know, the seawalls and things like that. These are just, the money is just allocated after a disaster. So there's yeah. a massive hurricane comes through, everyone gets flooded, the beach gets washed away, federal dollars are allocated to fund some kind of recovery from that which is then used you know, to add sand back to the beach the beach nourishment to build some seawalls to buy out some of the people that have been flooded so they can move to more secure places but it's not there's no long-term planning it doesn't seem right it's just a reaction to the event but that is an argument that people will make really that these coastal communities these very rich coastal communities will maybe they should pay for this protection themselves. Is this really a good use of federal dollars? Yeah. And whilst they might bulk at the car, you know, whilst they might not be happy with the cost, I think many people would argue that that cost actually is a tiny percentage of what those communities make every year from the tourism industry. Yeah, I think you're, quite, actually you're quite right. It's yeah. a tiny proportion really of their income. And that if they were to pay for these measures themselves because they want to stay on the shoreline, which many people would argue is unsustainable in the long run, like, like I said, these barrier islands in North Carolina, realistically, are they going to survive? Right. Are they going to be able to you know, hold housing for decades to come with increasing storm surges, rising sea levels, more powerful hurricanes? I think most most people would say that's unlikely. So really, if they want to stay there for the foreseeable future and make money off it whilst they can, I think there's a good argument that they should perhaps pay for that themselves because it probably isn't a good spend of government money protecting houses which aren't going to last. And if they paid for it themselves, there would be then more federal money left over to support those people that don't have the financial resources to 
to move to more mm-hmm. valuable yeah. more valuable <laughs> better protected land don't have the financial resources to put themselves in risks way i mean <laughs> i realize that's actually not true because what we learned in this discussion is that uh, disproportionately the poor are in uh, harm's way and the rich are not only equipped to deal with it uh, themselves but also get the subsidy uh, from the federal government which seems to be a a flaw in the system peter i've, I've well, fair to say it's it seems to me to be well not when, the way to do it <laughs> well i want to it not it is not and I, I think that's a fair criticism is that the political influence of the wealthier communities uh affects federal spending it's a it's a flat truth that's absolutely true uh, the thing that you pointed out michael that i'm interested in is the fact that it's not it's not hyperbole to say that there is no comprehensive federal coastal strategy when it comes to these issues and tyler i'll say in our interview with joan pope who worked at the corps of engineers as a senior researcher on coastal policy for 30 years, pointed that out in her interview with us. She said, you know, it's just amazing to me that there was never a comprehensive and still isn't shoreline management strategy for the United States of America. And Howard Marlowe, who's the host of uh, the Waterlog podcast, a DC uh, uh, show here, has talked on his show frequently about the absence of a comprehensive federal strategy and that we're driven by post-storm spending. the disaster supplemental spending that Congress has approved in the last, I don't know, five years is in, well in excess of hundreds of mil- billions of dollars. Uh, and I think you're right, Michael, to say that the, that the flow of those revenues out of the federal government and onto the coast of America is distorted by political uh, influence. And uh, I have a hot take. Surprise and surprise. The wealthy people know how to direct revenues to them i've got a hot take so uh michael i don't know if you follow do you follow uh nba basketball kind of doubt it but uh (laughs) i do not (laughs) well this might be i I don't think there's a uh there might be an equivalent over there across the pond but just bear with me so here in the united states we have the the national basketball association and they have a way of balancing out the playing field so uh during a regular season you know the top teams make the playoffs and then the lower seed teams get draft picks. So yeah. it, and based on probability, there's a whole lottery system, but we won't get into that. But the point is they try to balance it out so that if your team is terrible, hey, you, there's always hope for next year. You might get a great young new prospect and off to the races, right? Well, it's kind of like that. This is what I've, I've been seeing with a lot of these hurricane states. So there's this thing in basketball called tanking, where you deliberately lose. You, you're like, well, I'm a middling team. We, we might make the playoffs, but we're really not that good. Let's just try to lose all our games and be one of the worst teams in the league so that we can get a, a strong draft pick for next year and turn that in into a, a, a brighter future. And it seems to me that some of these hurricane zone states have been tanking. They've been deliberately trying to lose. They've been deliberately just because they know that there's there's going to be that federal appropriation coming their way. There's going to be that new draft up, pick racking coming up down. the damages to uh, collect more money. Yeah, and I I mean this is this to me is a problem because if you're not tanking, if you are really trying to win, be competitive. In the case of climate change, this is about like investing your own tax dollars in resiliency in trying to solve these social problems that, Michael, you uh, wrote about so well. Hmm. 
you know, th- those earnest attempts are being... You get penalized. You, yeah, it, it just, it seems like eh, maybe we could really use a better, uh, you know, if this was the NBA, I would need Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, to come and make some, make some rule adjustments, you know? <laughs> we need some new rules, I think. That's my hot take. Yeah, I mean, you're right, really. Why would you band together as a community and pay for this stuff yourself when you know that when the next hurricane comes through, the government's going to send millions of dollars your way to pay for it for you. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, uh, it's, it creates an interesting incentive. And I will say that having worked with local communities to finance shore protection projects in North Carolina, uh, pretty extensively working with small towns, uh, getting that federal investment is is absolutely the brass ring that's what everybody wants the 50-year federal commitment where the uh, federal government and the army corps of engineers pay 65 percent of the project cost so for north topsail beach the project i was mentioning 267 million dollar estimate the federal government is on the hook for 65 percent of that leaving 35 percent which is split 50 50 between the state and the local community. So the state picks up 17 and a half. So of the $267 million, the local communities on the island are slated to pick up about 17 and a half percent. So the, which is a substantial amount of money for these small towns, uh, Topsail Beach, and I mean, North Topsail Beach has a population. Still heavily than, subsidized. Heavily subsidized. Um, but if they don't, you know, this is what they're trying to get is this federal investment. But um, I, I'm a big believer, Michael, in what you were saying. Um, the communities that benefit directly from these federal investments have to be part of the financial uh, pay, paying system. They have to contribute and, and in a meaningful way. Uh, no more tanking. No more tanking because it takes away that, that, that incentive to, to sit back and not react and wait for the federal money to rain down from heaven. Uh, which we can't. I don't like tanking. I don't like tanking. It's it's flopping. It's I I prefer. I like my government the way I like my basketball. Competitive, you know. Get out there and really try to win. That's what I want to see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it comes back to what I was saying earlier, really, though, as well. I mean, of course, you're pointing out that there's a large amount of money at play here that these communities are expected to put forwards. But the question that really needs to be asked is. How much money are these communities making every year off of these coastal properties? You know, how much tax dollars are they paying? What does that money actually represent to them in a percentage term of their kind of annual incomes from these properties? And I suspect in some of these very rich coastal properties, uh, coastal communities, whilst they kick up a fuss for paying, while they kick up a fuss about paying for it, they probably you you will probably find that it is really a tiny proportion of their actual income. They can handle it. Yeah, I, I think agree. you're right yeah, about that. They can handle it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the occupancy taxes, revenues for those communities are significant. The property tax values are high. Uh, these the thing about beach towns when it comes to public expenditures, uh, they don't pay for schools typically. Uh, you know there are no children usually these are residential these are investment property communities older there's communities a, yeah. often and there's a, as well. a lot of stuff they don't have to pay for you pay for police fire lifeguards and trash pickup sewer but the public 
costs of, of, of a major complex city are really not all there. So they've got, yeah. they tend to have a lot of money to spend. It's, they're they're and incomplete. Can contribute. They're incomplete. And by the way, I just love a real coastal community where you do have those things, where you do have schools <laughs> and you do have students and you do have yeah. like a movie theater where actual locals go. Cause I like coastal towns yeah. that are real and authentic. All right. Before we wrap this thing up, we got to ask Michael, what else are you working on? You're yeah. a freelance writer. You're a curious dude. You're doing research. What's what's on your mind elsewhere in your portfolio? Um, nothing related to coast. Well, maybe slight coastal link, actually. Um, at the moment, I'm working very heavily on a feature on accident-tolerant nuclear fuels huh. to uh, make <laughs> a nuclear power plants safer, in theory, which I guess is a kind of a coastal issue. Well, uh, I, yeah, yeah, it is. It's well. I think a lot of people would argue that uh, decarbonization of the energy sector is going to require increasing investment in nuclear uh, power generation. So, uh, which is a sea level rise issue. So, yeah, everything kind yeah, of is and, coastal and, in a way. And the program funded by the Department of Energy in the U.S. on advanced fuels for nuclear reactors has kind of come about in in part or really mainly following the Fukushima accident. So you know, yeah. that's that's what's driving the investment in the development of new fuels. Doesn't new get any more coastal than Fukushima. That's <laughs> exactly. pretty darn coastal. You know, China, uh, Japan announced today that they are uh, they're they're planning to start releasing some of the treated uh, water that they've been storing on the Fukushima site into the Sea of Japan, and uh, a lot of controversy about that. Uh, yeah, in the, yeah, indeed. And what else am I working on besides that? Also, perhaps a slight coastal issue. I've got another physics-based article I'm working on on how you measure the chemical composition of a cow's burp, which uh, <laughs> is quite a big issue due to the amount of methane they produce. And right. there's a lot of work on feeding them supplements, many of which are based around seaweed, hence the coastal link, and whether or not that can produce methane. But the focus of the article I'm looking at really is, well, how on earth do you know that your cow is farting or burping less methane than before? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love scientists? You got to create I, you know, a delta. You, you're, you gotta, a, you're you're a, a science a science guy, and I you know I just love that kind of research stuff. Like you know, it does matter. Well, uh, Michael Allen, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your evening over in the UK to talk to us about uh, climate adaptation and the social economic uh, implications of our approaches. Uh, the article is in Hakai Magazine, which is H. For y'all that, uh, listening to this show, Hakai is H-A-K-A-I-Magazine.com. It's a fantastic magazine. Uh, I am a big fan of it. Super quality writing, uh, beautiful photography, always relevant. I just It's one of my favorite publications. Uh, so, Michael, thanks for uh, talking to us. The article is called Protection for the Rich, Retreat for the Poor. It is in the October 15th edition of Hakai uh, excuse me, October 14th edition of Akai Online. Check it out. Uh, closing thoughts, Michael? Well, there's a lot really to think about, really. But really, the main thoughts, I think, are that cities need to think about this stuff when they implement it and they need to make sure they have tighter controls and regulations over it. They need to plan for the future and they need to... It's obvious that these, uh, in many ways, that these unintended consequences could and will happen and they just need to make sure they take control i guess and that people's you know that our governmental money is spent wisely on these things 
and protects everyone because we all pay taxes. Very well said. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Michael Allen from the UK freelance journalist. Uh, check him out at Hakai Magazine. Uh, Michael, have a great weekend over there. And uh, hopefully we can have you back on. If you do any more coastal writing, send us a link and we'll put it in uh, Coastal News today. And uh, uh, look forward to talking to you again. That would be great. It's been a pleasure to be on. And yeah, thanks for having me. Is it sad to be 